0: Well, youth, you can actually relax. The rest of you can sweat it out, realizing I'm going to fill the rest of your time. Um, I've got more than enough to talk about, and we'll actually be cutting some out today. Um, Oh, how I love our youth. Gideon, thank you. Um, That's my fault. I I usually send reminders during the week, and I did not remind Gideon, and uh, he did not remind himself either, apparently, so... (laughs) Here we are. Um, as I was making assignments for speaking, uh, I went back and looked at 2020 and looked and said, okay, who didn't speak during 2020? And that was who I uh, started to ask to speak. Um, and I noticed at the bottom of that list as I'm alphabetically near the end, there I was, I hadn't spoken in 2020. So I'd set a goal for myself when I uh, was set apart in the bishopric that uh, I would try not to ask somebody else to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So here I am uh, giving a talk today. But to understand the the reason for my talk, uh, I first need to share a little bit about my father. My father is the second youngest of five siblings. His mother was a lifetime member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with an ancestry that goes back three generations in the church to her great-grandmother, who crossed the plains with the Willie Handcart Company. My dad's father, on the other hand, was not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. At times, while my father was growing up, his mother would attend church regularly. At other times, not so much. One time, after they had moved into a new ward, and wishing to support the ward and show her faithfulness, she was attending church without the rest of her family. My grandfather, for some reason, needed her that day, and so he asked my father and my father's younger brother to go get her from church. Uh, My father grew up with a love of the outdoors and of guns, and like many boys of his generation, he had many toy guns, uh, rifles and pistols, and had been playing cowboys with his younger brother that day. And so as they set off for the church building, they had many of these guns strapped to their body. But due to their young age and small stature, the rifles especially were too long for them. Meanwhile, back at the church building, my grandmother was doing her best to impress the members of her new ward as they met for their sacrament service on the second story of their church building. Oddly, there started to be a noise coming from the stairwell at the back of the chapel. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Got louder and louder. The speakers stopped speaking. Every head in the congregation turned toward the back to figure out what is making that noise. Suddenly, the doors were kicked in, and standing there was my father and his younger brother. It had been their rifles hitting the steps as they walked up that had been making the noise. Then, with their best John Wayne impression, they pulled out their toy pistols, pointed them at the congregation, and said, where's our mom? (laughs) My now thoroughly embarrassed grandmother quickly gathered up her children and red-faced headed for home. As my father continued to grow up, he had a semi-active relationship with the church. In high school, he began to date my mother. She was a full participant in the church and would not accept anything less than a temple marriage. And so my father made sure he was worthy. And while she was in grade 12, they got engaged, and a couple weekends after she graduated high school, they were married in the Kirtland, Alberta Temple. However, my father was not prepared for his experience in the endowment. He looked around at all the people there and thought to himself, what kind of cult did I join? He was not prepared for the rich symbology of the temple. It was so foreign to anything else he had experienced in the church so far. My father is not alone in his experience with the temple. I have spoke with many individuals who although they find great joy in going to perform baptisms and confirmations for their deceased ancestors, they have no desire to go and perform the endowments for them. They feel confused by it. It can feel very repetitive At times, it almost feels like a pagan ceremony. While in a meeting in Los Angeles with state presidents to gather funds for the Los Angeles Temple, President David O. McKay shared a story of his niece. His niece had recently been initiated into a sorority and then shortly thereafter had attended the temple for her her own endowments. She later met with President McKay and told him that although she had had both experiences, she was much more impressed with her sorority. There was an audible gasp in the audience as President McKay told this story. I'm sure many in the congregation had thought something along the lines of how dare this young lady, what audacity to speak to the prophet of God about the temple in such a manner. But then President McKay paused And then he said, brothers and sisters, she was disappointed in the temple. And then he carried on, brothers and sisters, I was disappointed in the temple. And then he finished his sentence, and so were you. Then no one gasped. As one attendee later said, he had us. He then asked the question, why were we? disappointed with the temple. He then began to give give some reasons. They were not prepared for the temple. How could they be? They were not worthy enough. They were too quick to respond negatively, critically. They were not yet seasoned spiritually. And then he said, quote, I believe there are few, even temple workers, who comprehend the full meaning and power of the temple endowment, Seen for what it is, it is the step-by-step ascent into the eternal presence. If our young people could but glimpse it, it would be the most powerful spiritual motivation of their lives. So it is with that backdrop that I wish to speak today about the temple and more specifically on the endowment. One of the reasons that the endowment can feel foreign to us Is because of the immense symbolism in the ceremony. Symbolism is also what makes Isaiah hard to understand. We're kind of spoiled in the church because Mormon often explains everything so well for us. He'll stop the scripture story and insert a, and thus we see, and then he'll explain the scriptural application and how we should apply that in our lives. It is for that reason, I believe, that it is hard for us to understand through symbolism but our challenge is to learn how to learn through symbolism in the temple. For anybody who has been through the temple themselves or has been through an open house or even has seen a picture of one of the ceiling rooms in the temples, you may be familiar with some of the elements of that room. S. Michael Wilcox shares some examples of symbolism that can be found in the ceiling rooms. For any of you who have Looked at it, you may have noticed a large chandelier in the rooms. For the small ceiling rooms, they almost seem too big for that room. Like they don't quite belong there. It's too much. What could these chandeliers represent? Well, what do they do? They provide light for the room. And they sit right over the altar. What does light represent? Well, light can be a representation of many things. But one of the most powerful things that it represents is Jesus Christ. So the bride and groom are taught to put Jesus Christ at the center of their marriage, to let him light up their relationship. They are not taught that specifically in the sealing ceremony. They don't need to be. The chandelier teaches them that. How about the altar? What could it represent? Well, what was done anciently on altars, sacrifice was offered. What are the bride and groom asked to place upon the altar? They are asked to place themselves symbolically upon the altar. They are asked to give up their old lives, to become a new creature, to not focus solely on their own needs, but to focus on the needs and wants of their spouse. They are not taught that specifically in the sealing ceremony. They don't need to be. The altar teaches them that. Often in ceiling rooms, there's two mirrors on opposite walls. What could these mirrors represent? Well, what do we see when we look in a mirror? We see a reflection of ourselves. And if you look at the correct angle at these mirrors on the opposite walls, you'll see a reflection of yourself extending off in both directions for what seems like eternity. Perhaps this could represent and bring to our minds our ancestors and our descendants who are being bound together with a welding link of the sealing power that is in that room. If you, like me, have tried to get just the right angle and bounced around a little bit, trying to get that reflection just right, you may have thought to yourself, man, it just seems like I'm always in the way. What a powerful lesson these mirrors are teaching us. That when we focus on ourselves, we get in the way of eternity. Now, let me talk about the ordinance of the endowment. The church is being more and more open about what occurs in its temples. For example, you can now watch authorized church videos of temple clothing and temple garments on the church websites. The covenants we enter into are clearly explained. Some of us have the inclination that we should never talk about the endowment outside of the temple. I think that is also what makes us unprepared for the endowment. I don't think that's the correct approach. However, there is still some things that are too sacred to speak of outside of its walls. I hope to do my best today to talk about some of the things that have improved my worship in the temple For those of you who have received your own endowments, I hope you'll be able to understand and see and hear what I am talking about. For those who have not, I hope you'll continue to prepare and study so that you will find yourself well-prepared for that experience. We have a few definitions of the endowment given by church leaders. One of the most quoted is by President Brigham Young when he said, Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father. Passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs, and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal exaltation." it may be useful to define some of the words that President Young speaks about. President Young spoke of tokens received in the temple. The definition of token is to throw together and comes from the Greek word sambolon, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. And it has very little meaning until you understand its application. It can be a bit confusing. Contracting parties would break a sambolon, a bone or tally stick, into two pieces, then fit them together again later. Each piece would represent its owner. The halves thrown together represent two separated identities merging into one. Simply put, a token is your physical proof of a contract. President Young also referred to signs. One of the words translated as sign in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word O-W-T-H. I'm also probably pronouncing that incorrectly. This is an interesting word because it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and ends with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Perhaps this is a representation of Jesus Christ. He is called the first and the last. He is also called Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In general terms a sign may be interpreted as a representation of the Lord, especially of his atonement. An example of a sign would be the cross. It is not only the instrument of the crucifixion. It is also the intersection of a horizontal and a vertical line, the horizontal line representing mankind and the vertical line representing God. Where these lines intersect is where God meets mankind, and that is possible because of Jesus. A similar sign is made when we raise our right arm to the square as we perform priesthood ordinances, as we create a horizontal and vertical line showing the interaction of God with mankind. During the endowment ceremony, we are taught about the creation and our first parents, Adam and Eve, one of the best ways to be prepared for the temple is to study the creation and the story of Adam and Eve. At the end of the creation, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. This garden was a special place, a holy place east in Eden. East is a holy direction to the ancient Israelites, since so it was a holy place within a holy place, and in fact was the first temple on earth. It was a place where God could come And meet with mankind. Adam and Eve had a choice to make while they were in the garden to partake of the fruit of knowledge, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or to not partake and be able to stay in God's presence. In one manner, at least, this fruit could be viewed as bitter because it meant leaving God's presence. Eve was the first to partake, and then Adam was left with a choice to partake of the bitter fruit or be left a lone man in paradise. This is a shadow of a future decision that would be made some 4,000 years later by another man in a garden when he decided to drink of the bitter cup that he not be left a lone man in paradise. After the fall, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and prevented of partaking of the fruit of the tree of life by cherubim and a flaming sword. Cherubim does not have a good translation into English, but Joseph Fielding McConkie taught us that cherubim are sentinels. This gives added meaning to President Young's definition of the endowment. These sentinels, or guardians, protect the way of the tree of life, ensuring only those that are worthy may return and partake. Cherubim were also woven into the veil of the temple in ancient Israel, which guarded the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was symbolic of the presence of God, just as the celestial room is in our temples today. Thus, they guarded the way back to God's presence. They were also found within the Holy of Holies, on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, This cover was called the mercy seat. It could also be translated as the atonement cover. Thus, in a very real sense, these cherubim guard the presence of God, including our access to the atonement as represented by the atonement cover. Only those who have a covenant relationship with the savior as represented by signs and tokens may return to God's presence for eternity. To help Adam and Eve with this end, God made covenants with them. The Savior also clothed them in coats of skins. I spoke in Sunday school about how Joseph Smith, in his journals, would use the word endowment interchangeably with the word endowment. Endowment is a Latin word meaning bestowal of a gift. Indu is the Greek form of the root of the word that we have as endow. Endue means to clothe. I find it no coincidence that the first gift after the fall given to mankind was a gift of clothing. These coats of skins given to Adam and Eve came from animals that needed to be killed in order for the clothing to be made. As there was no death before the fall, these animals were the first deaths on earth. They needed to sacrifice their own lives so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. Both the books of Genesis and Moses teach us that it was the Lord, or the Savior, who made the coats of skins. Who was better qualified to offer the first sacrifice on earth than the Savior, who would later offer himself? As the great and last sacrifice. Who better to teach Adam and Eve about the law of sacrifice and the immense symbolism found in that law? One of the definitions of the Hebrew word that we have translated in the Old Testament as atonement is to cover. These coats of skins represent many things, including a gift of clothing or an endowment of endowment if you will, they also are a representation of the covering of the atonement. It has the power to cover our metaphorical nakedness. I like the word endowment because one of the central themes of our temple experience is the act of being clothed. Clothing does many things for us. It warms us. It protects us. It is literally the thing we keep closest to ourselves. It distinguishes us. It even has the capacity to uplift us. We wouldn't expect to see a king or queen, for example, acting in their royal capacity in jeans and a t-shirt. We would expect to see them dressed in majestic robes. The robes of the holy priesthood with which we are adorned in the temple do not necessarily make us earthly kings and queens, but on an eternal level, they do exactly that, and so much more. I love in the Doctrine and Covenants when we are taught that between his death and burial, or sorry, burial and resurrection, Jesus went to the righteous dead, and organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness." Now we get the opportunity to be clothed with power and authority as we perform this precious work for our deceased ancestors in the temple. Names are also a very important part of the endowment. To help us understand more, it may be useful to understand the meaning behind some of these names. We are taught that the premortal name of Adam was Michael. When he came to earth, his name was changed to Adam. Adam is a Hebrew word meaning mankind and is gender neutral, thus represents both male and female, or all of us, fallen mankind. Michael is also a Hebrew word, which means who is like God. These names teach us a story that someone who was like God left God's presence Come to Earth and become fallen mankind. We are also taught in the scriptures that the post-mortal name of Adam is once again Michael. After the atonement of Jesus Christ overcomes the effects of the fall, then once again mankind becomes like God Eve comes from a longer Hebrew word meaning living, which is a feminine word. Eve represents feminine life and is the mother of all living. She walks side by side or rib by rib, so to speak, with Adam on their journey. One of the invitations of the temple is to consider ourselves as if we are Adam and Eve. Their story is our story. We do a disservice to Adam and Eve to cut off their story in the middle. Their story is not about a fall, but about getting up from a fall. Just as the Savior story isn't a story about a crucified man, but of a risen Lord. Um... Similarly, the lessons taught in the temple are not about sentinels keeping us away from God, but about our covenants and our relationship with the Savior, allowing him to bridge the gap between us and heaven. As President McKay said, our moral journey, as taught to us in the temple, is about our ascent back to the eternal presence. The word atonement... Doesn't come from Latin, Greek, or Hebrew. It comes from Old English. And to understand its meaning, we just need to break down its root words at, one, meant. Or in other words, to make as one or to make whole. The book of Abraham refers to the creation as a series of divisions, dividing light from dark, dividing water from land, even dividing man from woman, in a sense. After the fall, these divisions continue with the separation of mankind from God, or spiritual death, and the separation of our spirits from our bodies, or physical death. The atonement of Jesus Christ exists to overcome all of these divisions. In fact, that is also the purpose of religion. Religion is a Latin phrase meaning to bind back or to put back together. This is especially true for the brokenhearted. Religion at its core, true religion, should help make us one heart and one mind. Our goal, our mission is to build Zion and the temple stands at the center of that goal. The endowment is specifically designed to be repetitive. It is designed for us to go back over and over again. We cannot learn it all in one go there are so many layers we cannot learn at all in a thousand visits to the temple. The Lord can always teach us more in his holy house. I believe it is designed in such a way so that we will keep going back. That way, the work for all of God's children can be done. I'll wrap up here. I wish to share some of the promises made by Jesus Christ through his holy prophet, in the most recent conference. Quote, The temple lies at the center of strengthening our faith and spiritual fortitude because the Savior and his doctrine are the very heart of the temple. Everything taught in the temple, through instruction and through the Spirit, increases our understanding of Jesus Christ. His essential ordinances bind us to him through sacred priesthood covenants. Then, as we keep our covenants, he endows us with his healing, strengthening power. And oh, how we will need his power in the days ahead. If you do not yet love to attend the temple, go more often, not less. Let the Lord through his spirit teach and inspire you there. I promise you that over time, the temple will become a place of safety, solace, and revelation. During my my preparation for this talk, I was listening to some other talks. And in one of the talks, the speaker told the story of one of of some of his friends who as they were preparing to go to the temple, their five-year-old asked them, where are you going? To which they responded, we're going to the temple. And then this five-year-old said, well, when you get there, say hi to my good friend Jesus. They chuckled at this a little bit and then said, well, I don't think we'll see him there but if we do, we'll make sure we say hi. And then this very wise five-year-old responded, oh, I think you will see him there if you look hard enough. I bear my witness of the power of the temple. I bear my witness that Jesus is found there that his presence emanates from everything that we do there, everything that we see there. It has the power to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. I love him, and I love his house, and I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.